Legacy Podcasts present Torque, a novel by Ty Drago, performed for you by the author, and featuring music by Nicholas Allen Nelson. The 51st Cog. Ainsley was still waiting on the rooftop overlooking the empty plaza when the keepers came for her. There were half a dozen of them, and they closed around her as if afraid that she, too, might suddenly develop the power of flight. Finally, they shackled her, and she was marched wordlessly down to the street. There was no one around. The uniformed, stone-faced men led her along the promenade that circumvented the drop, heading back toward the market plaza. As they did, Ainsley scanned the skies, and any moment she expected to see that now familiar golden figure appear. Well, hoped, anyway. He didn't. You're obeying the orders of a mass murderer, she told the keepers as they reached the plaza's edge. No reply. She pressed on. Baird and Gammon murdered my parents, their flying monster killed my friend, and another one was sent down to the middle market to slaughter lower folk. Shut up, one of the keepers grumbled. Innocent people died, not for any crime, but just because Baird and Gammon wanted them dead. I said shut up, the keeper snapped. The rest said nothing, though Ainsley read their unease. These were ordinary upper folk, not maniacs like Gammon or heartless power mongers like Baird. Somewhere beneath their training and commitment to the status quo, each possessed a moral compass. Didn't they? Is this the kind of people we are, she demanded, who blindly accept the murder of innocents? Our leaders did those things. That means we all have blood on our hands. The keeper in charge whirled on her, red-faced. He raised his fist. One more word and I'll teach you manners. Go ahead, she said, refusing to flinch. Yesterday I watched Henry Gammon murder my father. This morning an innocent lower girl and I were nearly hanged. And Baird brought my little brother to watch. To watch! She dressed him up like a little lord so that he'd look respectable while his sister swung at the end of a rope. Were you there? You must have seen... The keeper struck her. Ainsley took the blow, her head snapping sideways. For a moment her vision swam, but she stayed on her feet, tasting blood. I'll give you that again the next time you open your mouth. Ainsley's rage, barely contained these past few days, erupted. Do it! Beat me to death! You think I care? I've lost almost everything that matters to me. The only thing left is the truth, so I'm going to speak it, right up until the moment when Baird hangs me without trial. That's the kind of person you're supporting. It was pretty good, she thought, as impromptu speeches went. And it was about to earn her another blow when a voice said, Enough. Edith Baird sauntered over, surrounded by a small contingent of guards. The rest of the plaza stood deserted, and Ainsley could see why. The battle between Torque and Wyvern had left large sections of the flooring damaged. It would take time and some serious repair work before the upper folk could convince themselves that it was safe here again. Still causing trouble, I see, the proctor remarked. Your father would be ashamed of you. Ainsley said, Piss off! To her annoyance, Baird only laughed. Such language from a young lady of your upbringing. What would your mother say? Kill me if you're going to, Ainsley spat. But stop talking about my parents as if you didn't murder them. Oh, you'll certainly die, girl. But not before you answer my questions about that remarkable friend of yours. What friend? Torque, of course, Baird replied. This fellow who can fly and lift fifty times his body weight and toss trained soldiers around like rag dolls. We need to understand him. She glanced at her keepers and added, Not that I'm overly concerned. I'm sure by now Commandant Gammon has dealt with him. Ainsley said nothing. The proctor pressed. Tell me, child. 
Is it still Rand Roberts under that wonderful armor? Where did his newfound power come from? Of course she'd want to know that, Ainsley quietly supposed. Edith Baird would never allow anything to exist in the machine that was beyond her control. Ainsley met the woman's gaze. First, let me ask you a question. What's Wyvern for? The proctor looked nonplussed. What? Grabber, I get, Ainsley said. Rat, too. Those could be used in the lowers to ferret out and murder innocent people. The keepers surrounding her shifted uneasily. Baird's expression darkened. Watch your tongue, dear. It's going to get you into even more trouble. Ainsley ignored her. But Wyvern, with its wings, would be useless down there. Baird didn't reply. Want to know what I think? Offered Ainsley. Again, the proctor said nothing. I think Wyvern was built to use here, in the uppers. Your plan's bigger than just culling the lower folk. You want everyone under your thumb regardless of where they were born. My father tried to tell me, so did Matron Barrett, but I was too wound up in my own naivete to ken it. Well, I ken it now. She addressed the keepers. Don't you see? It's a power play. The next proctorial election is what? Six months away? Maybe Edith here will win again. Then again, maybe she won't. So why not remove the risk? Why not shut down a thousand years of democracy in favor of Queen Edith I? All she needs is the cooperation of the military and the removal of obstacles like my father's newspaper. Plus, of course, a flying monster that can rain fire down on anyone who opposes her. She fell silent again, her arguments spent. But they'd had the desired effect. The keepers were looking thoughtfully at Baird. I won't be gawked at, the proctor snapped at them, her calm demeanor slipping. A few looked away. The rest didn't. This is a child, gentlemen, the proctor told them with forced patience. And a criminal. You'll want to keep that clearly in mind. What happened to Keeper Reynolds? Ainsley asked suddenly. This time they all looked thoughtfully at her. You remember him, don't you? She asked the keepers. The one who shot Torque, the old Torque, down in the middle market last week. Only one of them nodded, though she could tell from their expressions that all of them did remember. After all, Reynolds had been an uppers wide hero. The watch even ran a front page tribute to him, though Ainsley now kenned that her father had done so out of fear. He had a fall, Baird said, the words sounding hollow, rehearsed. No, he didn't, Ainsley replied. Commandant Gammon broke his neck in my father's study. I heard the whole thing. Lies, Baird said sharply, too sharply. She's trying to confuse you, hide her own crimes. You'll kill me no matter what I say, so why should I lie? Gag her, the proctor commanded. I don't want to hear any more of this nonsense. Two of the keepers, doubt on their faces, reached for Ainsley while a third stepped forward with a kerchief. Why bother gagging me, she demanded, when I'll just speak my mind at my trial. Except I already had my trial. Baird tried me in abstentia without even giving me a chance to defend myself. She couldn't risk letting what I have to say reach an open courtroom. She could see that her words weren't going to stop them, but maybe it would get them to think. It was the best she could do. She wasn't Torque. At that instant, Wyvern's head crashed onto the plaza just a few yards from where they all stood. The impact shook the floor. Everyone whirled toward it. The Vindicator's eyes, dead and black, regarded them from inside a mangled iron skull. Its mouth hung weirdly open as if its huge jaws had been ripped apart by something, someone, of incredible strength. Baird gaped at it in undisguised horror. No, she exclaimed, that's not possible. They all looked upward. Torque hovered twenty feet off the ground. His gilded body was ramrod straight, his feet together, his arms crossed. His golden eyes shone down on them. 
The keepers instinctively reached for their pistols, though Ainsley noticed that not one of them actually drew. Apparently, they could be taught. Where is Commandant Gammon? Baird demanded. Torque nodded toward Wyvern's head. In there. He's dead. You killed him, the proctor exclaimed. Nope, Torque replied flatly. Not an angry denial, just a statement of fact. He deaded himself when he refused to let me help him. Then he faced the keepers. Drop your pistols and unchain Miss Pinkerton. Do it now, Baird exclaimed. You don't give orders to... But she was too late. Her men did as they'd been told, unholstering their weapons and placing them on the plaza floor. Then the keeper in charge stepped up and unlocked Ainsley's shackles. The moment she was free, Ainsley stepped clear, rubbing at her sore wrists. Solid, the lowest champion said. Now, all of you go home. You're done here. The men traded looks. Not one of them so much as glanced at Baird. Escort me from this place, the proctor commanded as the keepers turned to leave the plaza. Nope, Torque told her. You stay. You don't tell me what to do, the proctor declared. You have no authority here. Ignoring her, he pointed his pipe at the keepers. Get gone. They got gone. Torque waited until the three of them, Ainsley, the proctor, and himself, were alone on the plaza. Then he descended to the floor, gliding smoothly and easily. All power and masculine grace. Ainsley and I are headed down the drop, Rand told Baird. When you're ready, come down to the middle market alone and unarmed, and we'll set up terms for trade. I won't trade with those vermin, the proctor replied, all polite pretense gone. Then stay up here and starve. You'd best kill me, boy, she said through clenched teeth. If you don't, I'll find a way to kill you. It may take some time, but I'm a patient woman. Sooner or later, I'll come for you. No, Ainsley whispered. You won't. Before the other two realized what was happening, she snatched up one of the keeper pistols. Then she shot Edith Baird in the head. The proctor's lifeless body toppled to the floor of the plaza in a spray of blood and brains. Ainsley, Torque exclaimed. You didn't have to do that. She dropped the gun and met his gaze. Edith Baird killed my parents. She killed my friends. And she would never have answered for it. Never spent a minute in jail. Never even stood trial. Sooner or later, she would have come for you and me and Lucy and Gerard. Just like she said. Torque stared down at the dead proctor. Then, as Ainsley watched, his mask rolled back, receding from his face like water running upward along a pane of glass, if such a thing were possible. Rand's eyes looked actually moist, as if he might weep for this terrible woman. No name had been wrong. Ainsley knew exactly who she loved. But she couldn't have him. And maybe that was all right. When Rand faced Ainsley again, the pain in his expression nearly broke her heart. Torque doesn't dead, he said in a whisper. I know she replied, loving him. So I did it for you. He looked at her, and she looked back at him, trying to appear calm and composed. But inwardly, her heart ached over what she'd done. She hadn't planned it. She'd simply seen an opportunity to avenge her parents and had taken it, almost without thinking. She was a murderer now, an assassin. As the silence stretched on, upper folk began inching their way back onto the plaza. Only a few at first, then more, curiosity overcoming their fear. By the time Rand looked away from her, a hundred eyes watched them from maybe fifty yards off. Well-dressed men and women who found themselves suddenly leaderless and were wondering what would come next. Ainsley wondered, too. Come on, Rand said. Let's head down the drop. All right. He picked her up as if she weighed nothing, his golden armor warm against her skin. Then, with the frightened and awestruck crowd looking on, he flew with her once more down into the depths of the machine. They didn't speak the entire way to the middle, though Ainsley noticed that he kept his mask off. He was Rand right now, not Torque. 
though his broad, strong-featured face was deliberately expressionless, almost a mask all by itself. Rand, she began at one point. I'm your friend, he replied without looking at her. Not your judge. They reached the lift platform overlooking the market. She spotted Matron Barrett and the Sisters of Jai first. They stood at the platform's railing, gazing uncertainly out at the ruin and the lower folk who inhabited it. They were trying, Ainsley supposed, to accept the horror before their eyes, the atrocity that their own people had wrought. Ainsley knew the feeling. It made her think of Julia. Then she saw Gerard, her brother huddled with Jad on the far side of the platform, both looking small and terrified. Lucy Stamper stood nearby, watching over them, her expression stone. As Rand and Ainsley came into view, her heart-shaped face turned wearily upward. She didn't smile. Ainsley wondered if Lucy would ever smile again. They touched lightly down atop the platform, drawing gasps from the sisters and a welcome cry from Jad. As he stepped away from Ainsley, the lower's champion opened his arms to the boy, who ran into them. But when he reached for Lucy, she looked back at him without moving. I don't want you, she said. I want Rand. At first he didn't respond. Then he closed his eyes and his armor receded, completely. It rolled further away from his already exposed face before sliding down his thick neck and across his shoulders, almost as if he were being slowly lifted out of a pool of liquid gold. At the same time, his feet appeared, still wearing his borrowed shoes, now scuffed and filthy. Then it slid up each leg and across his hips. His arms were last, revealed from the shoulders down and exposing the underlying clothing, until at last his hands were all that remained, both adorned with gilded gloves. Rand raised his pipe, clutching it in both fists, and let the last of the gold, the last of torque, at least for now, slide down his fingers and onto it. At last he stood there, a lower boy named Rand Roberts holding a gilded pipe. With a sob, Lucy fell into his arms. The three of them, Rand, Jad, and Lucy, dropped to their knees atop the platform, locked in a shared embrace. Jad cried, so did Lucy, and finally so did Rand a family that had suffered a terrible loss. Ainsley? She looked over at her little brother, his eyes, green like her own, fixed on her. Ainsley felt her heart break for what seemed the hundredth time that day. When he came to her, she scooped him up as if he weighed nothing at all. Then, almost without realizing it, she sank to her knees as well. For what felt like a long time, she held him. He was all he had now. Their parents were gone. So were Frederick and Eunice. True, their home was still there. With Baird and Gammon dead, could they return to it, somehow pick up the pieces? It was, she supposed, a question for another time. For now, they were outcast, and alone. I'll take care of you, Jerry, she whispered, using his nickname for the first time in longer than she could remember. Their father had never cared for it, but now Ainsley Pinkerton supposed she could do as she pleased. Jerry nodded, his small face pressed into the side of her neck, moistening her flesh with his tears. She glanced at the others and was mildly surprised to find Lucy looking back at her. The lower girl's arms were still wrapped around Rand and Jad. But she turned her face away from them, her dark eyes fixing on the upper girl, the former upper girl. For several moments their gazes locked. Then Lucy reached one hand toward her. Ainsley, feeling a depth of gratitude beyond anything she'd ever imagined, felt tears spring to her eyes. Shifting Jerry around, she reached one hand in return. The distance between the two families was just small enough to let their fingers touch and entwine. Lucy Stamper smiled. Ainsley Pinkerton smiled back. And for now, that was enough.
The 52nd Cog. Two days later, Rand, once again Torque, returned to the flop. He drew a light rune before trudging wearily over to his hammock and stretching out his gilded frame. No Name said, There you are. The dark-haired Ludling regarded him solemnly from the other hammock, which had been empty moments ago. Here I am, Rand confirmed. No Name climbed smoothly out and stood, looking at him. Where are Lucy and Ainsley? Still up in the middle. They're organizing folks and making sure everyone kens what's happened and what it all means. Why aren't you with them? I was. I just spent the last two days being Torque, destroying all but one of the lifts as promised, helping to clear Grabber's remains and counting bodies. 209, by the way. That's how many people died when that monster attacked. I know. I'm sorry. Rand didn't reply. No Name said, Everything's changed. Nope. Everything's changing. Lucy and Ainsley want to set up some kind of government with representatives elected by the traders, the stainers, the priests, and the factory drudges. Meanwhile, Matron Barrett's gone back to the uppers. She's hoping to help with the bargaining so the upper folk don't starve. She also intends to reveal to her people that Root really isn't a spirit of heresy. That maybe there's some good in you after all. Nice of her. No name remarked dryly. I really don't know how it's all going to turn out. Lower folk aren't used to having enough to eat and not being afraid. I'm not sure how we'll handle it. The Ludling smiled. At least they've got Torque. Yeah. But that's not why you came back here, is it? No Name said, his smile fading. Nope. Rand slid out of the hammock and stood. You lied to me. The Ludling said nothing. Rand said, Your root. Yeah. The Overseer. Your job was to make adjustments to the machine as needed. Repairs. Solid? Solid. And as part of that, you created the idea of Torque, didn't you? A guilty pause. Yeah. Then you found the first Torque, deliberately. A lower lud to fill the role you'd invented. Yeah. And then, a thousand years after whatever happened to him happened, you brought me into the machine when I was a Ludling, Rand exclaimed. Yeah. But how? How did you do it? I opened the door. What door? The door to the machine, the Ludling replied quietly. There isn't one. Yeah, there is. You just have to know how to open it. Where's it go? Outside. Rand pictured the rolling landscape of trees and strange animals. So much open space. Swallowing, he asked, Why? Why what? You brought me into the machine when I was eight years old. I had a family out there, parents. There's a place out there that has Roberts as part of its name. Is there? You've seen it? You've been outside? You know I have, Rand said accusingly. I told you. I can't see well in the uppers because technically it's outside the machine. Beyond these walls, I know next to nothing. You knew enough to advise me when I needed it. No Name looked at him quizzically. You told me to start being Torque when I was fighting Wyvern above the uppers. And later you recited my friend's names when I was about to die outside the machine. When the Ludling responded, it was with a curious wonder. Um, that wasn't me. Are you lying to me again? I'll never lie to you again, Rand. Not ever. It wasn't me. Then who was it? I don't know. Maybe Jai? Is Jai real? No idea, No Name replied. But I'm real. Maybe in some way she is too. And from what you've said, she might not be the harsh and looming mistress that the lower folk think she is either. Another mystery of the machine, Rand muttered. I guess so. Rand shook his head. Questions. 
Would he ever run out of them? Even so, he said, you knew enough about what goes on outside to lure me in here when I was a ludling. Only because you knocked. I knocked? No name nodded. I can't have been the first person to knock on the machine. Probably not. But I didn't hear them. I heard you. So an eight-year-old ludling walks up to the outside wall of the machine and just raps on it with his knuckles, and you open the door. It's more than that, No Name replied. I'd been alone for a long time, barely conscious, barely aware of anything or anyone. That part of what I told you was all solid. Centuries of vacant nothing. Then one day I heard a knocking. It was faint, distant, but it got my attention. Somehow the sound penetrated my stupor and aroused my curiosity. So, almost unconsciously, I opened the door and let him in. Let you in. Rand tried to remember it, but couldn't. He tried to remember Robertstown, but couldn't. Then what happened? At first, you were fascinating. The only person I'd encountered from outside the machine in a thousand years. But you couldn't see me. I spoke to you, waved at you, begged you. But you had no idea I was there. So finally, I fell back into my stupor and left you on your own. You could have sent me back out. You could have sent me back home. How? You didn't know I was there. Besides, you clearly wanted to explore. You could have tried. Maybe I could have. I don't know. But I didn't. Instead, I followed your wanderings for a while. But then the loneliness reasserted itself and I let you be. You need to ken that I was only partly conscious. I quickly forgot about you. After all, you were as blind as all the rest of the lower folk. But I did pick up your satchel. My satchel? Rand regarded the well-worn hide bag slung over the Ludling's shoulders. It had survived adventures in the uppers and even a fall down the drop. After that, Rand had forgotten all about it, but no name had evidently retrieved it. Rand wondered what was inside it now. Well, my satchel now, no name said. I've been carrying it around ever since, until I loaned it to you. So it was mine a lot longer than it was ever yours. He shrugged. Finders keepers. Keep it, Rand said. What about the door? Door? The one you opened to let me in. Oh, that closed automatically a minute or so after you entered. It does that. Trapping me in here. Yeah. Is that when you made me torque? You don't ken, No Name explained. I created the torque concept. That's true. I initiated the protocol within the machine a millennium ago to help me find a champion to defend the lower folk. But later, after the first torque was gone, I gave up on the idea and eventually forgot it along with pretty much everything else. But the protocol I'd started kept running, and I think it picked you, though I don't know how or why. Looking back on it, I now believe that's why I heard your knock, though I didn't know it at the time either. But how'd I survive back then? Why didn't a grabber get me? Why can't I remember anything? The Ludling replied, no idea. It wasn't because of something I did. You survived and forgot, all on your own. Lucy found me some time later, Rand said, feeling a hundred emotions at once. Hours or days? And that's when my life, my remembered life, began. Everything else happened exactly as I told you, the Ludling said. Until you found me in that knot a couple of weeks ago, I'd forgotten you existed. But when I realized you could finally see me, talk with me, my thinking cleared, or perhaps rebooted is a better word. He paused, hesitating. I'm sorry, Rand. For what? Lying to you. Why did you? 
When No Name replied, he sounded very young, very luddling. I was scared. Of me? No Name nodded. I'd never hurt you. I'm not sure I could if I wanted to. You can absolutely hurt me, Rand. Don't you ken that? But Rand didn't ken it, not at all. Then, suddenly, he did. By abandoning him. Rand's anger drained away. He sagged back against the hammock and looked with pity at this lonely, desperate god standing before him. No name waited in a kind of terrified, expectant silence, as if certain that Rand would now leave the flop, never to return, or, worse yet, vanish altogether, as if nothing more than the product of the Ludling's empty dreams. Rand straightened. As long as I'm alive, he said, meaning every word, you will never be alone. For the first time in Rand's company, No Name cried, his shoulders trembling. Watching him, Rand felt a piece of his own heart break. God or not, no lower folk had ever suffered as much, as endlessly as this one. Rand knelt down, wondering if he should, or could, hug the Ludling. He and No Name had never touched. There'd never been a need. And Rand wondered if his arms would close on empty space. But then No Name hugged him. Without warning, the little Lud threw his arms around Rand's gilded neck, sobbing. So Rand returned the embrace and found that what his arms closed around wasn't simply real, but alive. Thank you, the god whispered in his ear. Thank you. Seeming to get a hold of himself, he kissed Rand's cheek and stepped back. You're welcome, Rand told him. But there's something I need from you. What? No name asked. You know what? The Ludling nodded. And then he pointed to the back wall of the flop. When Rand looked at him in astonishment, No Name shrugged and said, I told you I knew this place well. The Final Cog He brought all twenty of them. These were the Lower Folk representatives, chosen from among their various groups to advocate for each particular group's interests in the new infant government. The Drudges wanted control of the liberated factories, the traders demanded exclusive rights to sell those factory wares to the lower folk, i.e., no more black. The Stainers insisted on establishing formal territories in the lowers that they would control in order to avoid trouble, and the priests to root were asking for a cathedral to be built, something grand and majestic to honor the god who had sent Tork to set them free. Collectively, they called themselves the Lowers Council, as good a name as any, Rand supposed, and all of them had come here today at Tork's insistence. Wary, probably even frightened, but they'd come. It's a long walk, Lucy remarked, eyeing the inside of the flop for the first time. I don't see why Tork couldn't have found something closer to the market. It needed to be out of the way, Rand replied. Wouldn't want anybody stumbling over it while they were scavenging in the bowels. Is this where Stuart lived when he was Tork? Of course, Stuart Crichton had never been Tork, but there was no point in saying that. Nope, that gearbox was bigger. We came here right after I decided to put on the golden armor. We, Lucy echoed. You and Root. Rand had told them both everything. Well, almost everything. So, is No Name here right now? Ainsley asked. He's standing beside me. Why can't we see him? Lucy asked. Because you're not Torque, No Name answered. And because he knew the lasses couldn't hear the Ludling either, Rand replied, because neither of you is Torque. Root, Lucy whispered reverently. I've always believed in him, always. But now to find out he's real, that he's part of the machine, it's... Unbelievable, Rand suggested. Wonderful, Lucy said. What a privilege it must be for you. 
has its ups and downs. Then he suppressed a laugh as no-name punched his leg. Afterward, thoughtfully, the Ludling muttered, I really do need to find a way to introduce myself to Lucy. Rand hoped he would. Is everyone behind you? he asked the lasses. Did anybody bail? No, Ainsley replied. But I don't think they enjoyed the walk. Rand had once thought of the old places as nobody's playground, an opinion shared by virtually all the lower folk. This was why, when Torque had personally invited the Lower's Council to join him in his sanctuary at the bottom of the machine, most of them had resisted. He could have explained his entire proposal from the start, but he hadn't been sure how they'd react. So he'd decided to spring it on them here, deep in the old places, where walking out in a huff was less practical. Giving them time to consider his plan would only have bogged things down. Sometimes it was easier to ask forgiveness than permission. So he'd only said that he had something important to show them, and since the asker was Torque, everyone had eventually, reluctantly, agreed. In preparation, Rand and No Name had cleared out every grabber nest along the route, a chore that had required a full three days. Along the way, they'd drawn light runes every six feet or so. More than was needed, but hopefully enough to make Torque's guests feel somewhat secure. Then, finally, he'd gone to collect them. And here they all were. Let's do this, Rand said. He'd pulled down the hammocks and pushed everything they'd taken from old Torque's flop against the sidewalls to make space. Even so, things got pretty tight before the last member of the council, looking haggard and nervous, squeezed inside. There was a lot of murmuring and more than a few complaints, which Torque both forgave and ignored. Lucy said, You sure about this? Nope. She sighed. Didn't think so. Rand gave her what he hoped was a reassuring grin and stepped to the back of the room, facing the group and levitating a foot or two off the floor so that everyone could see him. Lucy and Ainsley flanked him, though obviously floor-bound, with the lower lass on the left and the upper lass on the right. Their respective Ludlings, Jed and Jared, stood nearby, watching Torque with an awestruck wonder that still made Rand uncomfortable. He hoped it always would. Lower folk, he said loudly. No speaker's box down here. Fortunately, Torque's small flop wasn't the market plaza. Thanks for making this long trip. With our new freedom from the upper so recent, I can you all have a lot of work to do. But while I was fighting the last of the Vindicators, I discovered something that, I admit, had never really occurred to me before. I discovered what lay beyond the machine, outside of it. It isn't nowhere. There's an entire world out there, open spaces blanketed with grass and filled with trees and animals, most of which we don't even have names for. The council folk collectively gasped in astonishment, maybe even a little horror. They stared at him as if he'd just said up was down and dung made good eating. Rand got the distinct impression that if he hadn't been torqued, they'd have either laughed or beaten him to death. One of Root's priests shouted out, That's blasphemy! No name rolled his eyes. Rand had to fight hard not to smile at the irony. I can why you would feel that way, he replied to the berobed Lud, but I can prove it. In fact, I'm about to. In a moment, I'm going to open the door to the machine. More gasps, more frightened looks. Rand said, The machine is our home, but it's also our prison and we've suffered and starved here. It's time for that to end. It's time to step out into the world's great naught to breathe real air and drink clean water. That said, nobody's going to make anyone go anywhere or do anything. For today, all that'll happen is that Lucy Stamper, Ainsley Pinkerton, and myself will step outside for a bit. We won't go far, and we'll come back quickly. While we're out there, you can decide for yourselves, each one of you, if you want to join us, stay here, or go back to the lowers. Now, I don't know what will come of this. There are people already out there. Outer folk. They seem peaceful. But I can't judge how they'll react to our appearance, especially in great numbers. 
but that's a worry for another time. For today, I just want to show you all that we have a place available to us, with room and food and hope. Rand dropped back down to the floor and faced the blank wall that formed the rear of this gearbox. He felt Lucy's hand touch his shoulder, and he looked down into her round, freckled face. What? he asked. She smiled. Jared would be so proud of his papa. Would he? Yeah, he would. A bit to his surprise, tears stung Rand's eyes. He nodded without speaking and put a finger to the wall. No Name slipped up beside him, unseen by the rest, and whispered, Rand, I'm scared. I don't even know if I can exist outside the machine. Rand dropped to one knee and put his arm around the Ludling God and whispered in his ear, Torque can, so can you. And if it turns out you can't, then stay here and I'll be back. We all will. The machine is still our home. They'll abandon me, No Name whispered, sounding terrified. You have to trust them. After all, they trust you. Root belongs with his people. Then Rand added with a sly grin, What, you figured being a god would be easy? No Name smiled nervously back at him. Rand straightened. As he did, Ainsley leaned close and said, You know, we can only hear your side of the conversations with him, right? Yeah, Lucy added. It's weird. Rand laughed, and then he touched his finger to the wall. He started by drawing a line, a dozen feet or so wide, across the metal at a height of about seven feet, just as No Name had instructed him. Then he stepped to one side and carefully connected one end of that line to the floor and repeated the step with the other side. In the wake of his finger's passage, the metal glowed a gentle gold. Behind him, he heard agitated murmurs mixed with cries of reverent wonder. Solid, Rand heard Jad say. Wow, Gerard whispered. Finally, Rand pressed his gilded palm against the gray metal in the square center and spoke one word in the old tongue. A prayer, a command, open. The rectangle he'd drawn on the wall shimmered gold for a moment, then it disappeared. In its place, natural light and fresh air filled the cramped gearbox, and a collective sigh seemed to ripple through the council folk as they gazed out at what lay beyond the newly created opening. Grass. Trees. Ground. Life. Want to go first? Lucy asked him. We'll go together, Rand said. Maybe you should go first, Ainsley added. You're Torque, after all. Rand looked at them both and then down at No Name, who smiled up at him with an expression that weirdly mixed ancient wisdom with a Ling's innocent trust. He supposed he should say something profound. Here he was, after all, about to lead his people out of imprisonment and into an uncertain but hopeful future. Except profound had never been his strong suit. So he simply offered a hand to No Name, while Ainsley took Gerard's and Lucy took Jad's. We're all Torque, he said. Not bad for a Balzrat. Then the six of them, one hero, two lasses, two Ludlings and a god, stepped out of the machine and into the everywhere else. This concludes the reading of Torque by Ty Drago. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you're interested in buying the paperback version of the book, it's available on Amazon. Or if you prefer a signed copy, you can go to tydrago.com and check out our shop. Thanks for listening.